So this evening is uh, November 28th, 2012. Our message tonight is called Living in Nazareth. <coughs> Living in Nazareth. Before we get going with that, wasn't that a good word Sunday? Yeah. Are you a have or a have not? Yeah. Come on, a have or a have not? Yeah. Man, if we have all the armory of heaven at our disposal. I tell you, those who know they have power have a hard time walking in timidity. Right? Because you have the power to change things. You have the life-changing message. Turn with me to the book of Nahum. In the book of Nahum, I got a word during our worship service today. If you ever questioned if God was the kind of God who liked to pick a fight, you should read the book of Nahum sometimes. I think the most provocative statements in all of the Bible are in the three little chapters of Nahum. Nahum was written somewhere around 700 B.C., and that's of no importance to your daily life, except that Assyria was a major world power, and Israel was not. Israel was captive to Assyria. Are you in the uh, first chapter of Nahum? Tell me if you're there. Hey, before I read you that, let me tell you why I say it's provocative. Just skip over to the third chapter for a second. This is not our message. This is just, I don't know, every once in a while, could you say these are fighting words? I, I know we picture Jesus as a dainty little lamb, right? That's just sometimes how he is. That's not how the Bible presents him, but that's sometimes how the church presents him. Look, look at 3.5. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth and I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. Can you say those are fighting words? Yeah. God called out the kings of Assyria. <laughs> he, he called out the men of Nineveh. And he said, I'm about to strip you naked and smear nasty snuff, stuff on you in front of the whole world. I would say that's fighting words. To his people, though, he's not a fighting God. To his people, he's compassionate. He's tender. The word that I got during worship service came from the first chapter. And it picks up with these words. Starting in verse 4. 14-ish. I said 14. How about this? How about 13? Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the carved images and the cast idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave. For you are vile. Look there on the mountains. The feet of one who brings good news. Who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, O Judah. And fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. I believe that the king of kings is saying that he will break off of the neck. Any yoke. Any shackle. Anything that has enslaved his people. Because the kingdom is upon us. And if the kingdom is upon us then the armories of heaven are at our disposal. The only thing that could keep God from doing this for His people is found in Hebrews 4. Turn with me to Hebrews 4. You can have the best message proclaimed to you in the world. You can be told the most amazing things that people on earth have ever heard. And if you stomp your feet, cross your arms, and refuse to walk in them, it's difficult for them to come true. This is Hebrews 4, verse 2. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did. 
But the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. faith. It's not enough to hear a great message, to know that the Lord is crushing the oppressor and bringing peace to those who want to be liberated. You have to believe it to the extent that you act on it, to the extent that you trust that. We have to show it in our actions. This means if you believe you have power, you act in the power of the Holy Ghost. If you believe that you are here to liberate the lost, then you go after the lost. How many people are in the clutch of the lion or the bear while the shepherds sit back and play their harps? The kind of man that God honors his heart goes after the enemy destroys his work and liberates the captive. We don't want to go into the enemy's camp and take back what he's stolen from us. We want to go into the enemy's camp and burn it down and build the kingdom of God. Amen. Our king is able. And that means if you're in his kingdom, you are able. Go with me to Matthew 4. Tell me when you're there. In Matthew 4, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert. That would be too much to read. Start in 4.12. Ah, I better go to 4.18. Where should we go? 4.18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother. Eh, still not where we're at. 4.12. Then Jesus heard that John had been put in prison. He returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum. Now when you hear the word Capernaum, you make no connection to Nahum, do you? By the time we take a Hebrew phrase that is Kafar, Nahum, we get an English phrase that says Capernaum. And you make no connection to it. But Jesus left one place and went to live in another. In Israel today, they, they will tell you that Jesus was raised in Nazareth, but his home was Capernaum. This is the village of Nahum. Kafir in Hebrew means village. Nahum is the prophet Nahum. The prophet who prophesied a great deliverance. The prophet who mocked the enemies of God and said, you know what? God will make a public spectacle of them. All you have to do is believe. All that's required of you is you walk in the promise of God and he will decimate your enemies before all the inhabitants of the earth. They will all see it. And what I'm proclaiming to you is peace or good news. Jesus left Nazareth and he went to live in Kafir Nahum. He left one place and went to another. Now I'm going to tell you tonight, Capernaum is not a perfect place. He at one point says to Capernaum, if all the miracles that were done in you were done in Sodom, they would have repented, but you did not. But tonight, Kafir Nahum is going to stand for those who believe the promises of God and so they see victory. This is not where everyone lives, though. It's where I'm going to live. It's where I'm compelling you by the Spirit of God to live. But it's not where everybody lives. I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew 7. Say there. In Matthew 7 comes the verse that I got born again with. This will be Matthew 7, starting in 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, 
you workers of iniquity or evildoers. There are people who know how to call on His name. They might be able to say it in three languages. They might even occasionally speak for Him. Sometimes they might pick up His cause and fight in it for a while. Could even pray and seem to have success because God is so merciful to those who need Him. But they never knew Him. Or rather, they were never known by Him. You know, when speaking of a famous person, somebody say like Michael Jordan. You can say that you know him. You might even be able to say you advocated for him. You might even be able to say that you rooted for his team. Maybe even participated in some halftime spectacle. Jumping on a trampoline, dunking a basketball in front of him. But let me ask you something. If they asked Michael Jordan if he knew you, what would he say? Oh yeah, I know who he is. I know what his stats are. I know everything about him. I know what his jersey looks like. But does he know you? See, the kingdom of heaven is made of people not just who know the king. Not just people who know about the kingdom. But people who are known personally by the king. It is an intimate relationship. A powerful relationship. One that facts alone never satisfy. Something that only time and prayer. Only intimacy. Only power from heaven satisfy. And Matthew 7, starting in the 7th verse. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. Say that with me. Everyone who asks receives. Some people receive. Some special elect few receive. Or everyone who asks receives. Oh my goodness, we can have the best messages on earth. We can be told, hey, I will break your shackles. I will shatter that yoke upon you. I will embarrass your enemy in front of the whole world. But if it doesn't mingle with faith, faith, if you don't trust in it to the point that you will act on it, it's of no benefit to those who hear it. Amen. This word says everyone who asks receives. Amen. Come on now. Can we let that word be mingled with faith in us tonight. Can we begin to believe that if we say, Lord, I want to know your face, he will actually show you his face. Can we begin to say, Lord, I want to know that incomparably great power for those who believe. I need the eyes of my heart enlightened that he will actually do it. See, I believe he's doing it. I sense something amazing happening here. When great men of God, at least in my book, the kind that not everybody loves, but those who are loved by God love, begin to tell you there's an alignment happening in Houston. Something is happening in the Holy Ghost here. When you begin to see in a little storefront church that God is stacking the roster with men that can handle a harvest, I begin to sense something stirring in the Spirit. When you walk through Third Ward and you're greeted by those who are selling dope, as if you were a prophet because you told them the kingdom is coming. I sense that the Holy Ghost is stirring something here. And I want to ask you, is it finding a place of faith in your heart? It's not enough that I believe it or that Matthew believes it. Every member of the kingdom of God must have this message mingle with faith and we will see the greater works Jesus spoke of. Jesus moved on from Nazareth and he went to Capernaum. Nazareth was his boyhood at home. But when he was anointed of the Holy Ghost in power, he went immediately to Capernaum. He began to preach one message. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. 
Repentance always precedes power. Repentance always is the way that you bring the kingdom. This is why John the Baptist went out preparing a way. This is why John the Baptist went out preaching. And then they were ready to see Jesus. In our Monday night home meeting, spontaneously, just because of the power of the Holy Ghost in the room, one begins to confess publicly, repenting publicly. As a pastor, sometimes that's a little uncomfortable. You're like, oh, if the young men are confessing and the young women are confessing, there's a chance that two weaknesses are going to find each other. But you know what? The Holy Ghost doesn't care. His power fell upon the people in the Monday night Bible study. And one, then two, then three, then four, then nine or ten. Pretty soon the entire room was moved to repentance. This is because God's power is upon us. It's because His power is upon us. When you begin to feel the flesh fade to the background, when you begin to know that the kingdom of God is present among you, the first thing that happens is sin flees from your presence because Jesus is here. Amen. Jesus will not dwell in unbelief, but he makes his home among the faithful. He is enthroned upon those who are praising him with their lives. And so I say, let's make him a throne, saints. Can you give him a hand tonight? Can you say we love you, Jesus? Let us go to Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, I'm going to digress for a second because the kingdom is my heart. It is my heart, it's my heart, it's my heart. More than that, it's my life. 1352, he said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. We've been taught to demonize the teachers of the law. We've been taught that they were legalistic and they were bad people and there wasn't anything good there. So that the word Pharisee is synonymous with hypocrite and scribe is simply an unbeliever in our today's vernacular. But Jesus plainly says here, every teacher of the law who's been instructed about the kingdom. The older covenant spoke of four kingdoms that would rule the earth followed by the kingdom of God. And one thing Jews can do, my friend, is count. And when the Roman Empire came, they said, this is the fourth to have ruled the, this area. The fourth to rule the majority of the world. The kingdom of God is coming. It's coming. They didn't know repentance was necessary. They didn't know that it might not come in the way that they had envisioned it. But they could count. And teachers of the law that knew about the kingdom were like somebody that was taking treasure out. Old treasures. How many of you like old treasures? Come on now. You get it out of a shipwreck, you bring it up to the surface, and you know that what you're holding in your hand, no human being has seen for a thousand years. Something special about that. And there's something beautiful about a new treasure. It was just created, never before seen. Not a thousand years ago, never. The fresh work created beautiful. Old and new, the Holy Ghost will move upon teachers who understand the kingdom. And you should feel like a man with a house full of treasure. Not a have not, but a have. Somebody with all the armories of heaven. Somebody with all the storehouse of heaven. Somebody with absolutely unlimited potential. Like a coiled spring ready to go off anytime the devil walked by. Come on. Is nobody in here of that genre of people that used to walk around with half a breath in your chest all of the time, clenched fists, 
looking for an opportunity to display what little power you had as a 16-year-old boy, right? But boy, you got your chance and you strutted like a chicken, like a, like a, a rooster walking around. I looked for an opportunity. It was a little problem in my life. It kept me almost completely out of school. The God that we serve is the kind that says you won't have to fight those battles. See, what you need to do is believe the message and trust. And I will show up and I will embarrass your enemy and I will do it through you. I tell you, it's a disappointing thing to read about the inhabitants of Nazareth. Wouldn't you think if you grew up next to Jesus? If you grew up knowing about Jesus, that you would love him more? It's a funny thing, though. We find that the nations that have had Christianity the longest seem to be the deadest. If there's an English teacher out there, we'll say the most dead. Look at verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. (laughs) Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in the synagogue, and they were amazed. Everybody loves good teaching, don't they? Oh, you can hear it. You can be intellectually stimulated by it. You can go repeat it, take notes and highlight them as long as we don't have to live it. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Come on now. Jesus had miraculous powers. What you usually hear about Nazareth is that he couldn't do miracles there. How then did they know he had miraculous powers? They asked, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all of his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honor. And he did not do many miracles. Come on now. He did not do many miracles. There because of their lack of faith. All the lack of faith in the world. All of the demonic spirit of religion in the world cannot keep God from moving upon those that really need him. But it certainly hinders the work of God. It certainly limits it. Would they say even a blind hog finds what every now and then? Even a blind hog finds an acorn every now and then. So don't be surprised to hear that in a church where they don't believe in miracles, occasionally a miracle happens. Our God is merciful, but that's not where I want to live, friends. I don't want to live where there's an occasional miracle. I don't want to live in a land where Jesus' awesome power is limited by people's unbelief. They were amazed at him. They thought it was awesome until they thought about how familiar he was to them. You've heard the old proverb, familiarity breeds contempt. Don't we know this guy's brother and sister? Don't we know his mama and his daddy? Who knows what they're whispering about about that story. Jesus is the only guy about that age in his hometown. No telling what they might be saying. So Jesus moved on from there. He didn't make Nazareth his ministry home. And neither will I make Nazareth my ministry home. They call him Jesus of Nazareth because it was his boyhood home. But you can find in Matthew 4 and many other places in the scripture, he operated from Capernaum. The place where the great prophet had come before him and said, I will destroy the enemy's yoke. All you need to do is believe. 
See, somebody's coming with tidings of good peace. Somebody's coming whose feet are beautiful because he brings the good news of the gospel. You must only believe, and I will insult those who have insulted you. I will take them to task publicly. This is the place where Jesus moved on to. Now, each of the synoptic gospels contains this. Turn with me to Mark 6. As we combine them, it gets even more interesting. They took offense at him. In Mark 6, let us start in the first verse. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Amazing how quickly people turn. How quickly they, they love you on Sunday and divorce you on Monday. We've never known the people that know everything there is to know about Jesus and love Him on Sunday, but divorce Him on Monday. We've never seen a people like that. Except the entirety of our nation's Christendom. Boy, we print more books. We have more church services, more revival meetings. But we're offended when we encounter the real Jesus. What revival has ever happened in our nation that the churches did not stand against? Where did this man get these things, they asked. What, what's this wisdom he's been given? That he even does miracles. Did you hear for the second time? He was doing miracles. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. His teaching was great. His miracles were great. What were they offended with? He was just common human stock in their eyes. You know, I've been places where they didn't have a Bible in their own language. And they couldn't get one. And when we were fortunate enough to provide an entire village, each with a personal copy of the word, not in a distant dialect, in their own dialect, do you know that the children took those Bibles home and slept in the bed with them? They hugged them. They carried them while they were playing soccer. Where are you at, Judah? Am I lying? They treated them like bars of gold. Did your Bible spend this week on the back seat of your car? In your trunk? On the dash? You see, where there's great familiarity for some reason we begin to respect just a little less. But if the only copy of that book you had ever seen was written in somebody's blood in a museum and you only got a chance to see it every now and then, you'd probably memorize its every word every chance you got. Friends, the, the truth about Nazareth is that we live in Nazareth. We don't have to. We can be among the pagans and live such godly kingdom lives in front of them that they silence their talk and realize that they're ignorant men. Peter said this. But the landscape around us is one where everyone knows everything about Jesus. The Bible is a book that they're sure they know what it says, but then are surprised to find out what's in it. Oh, I, I know all of that. Really? You did? Why don't we start with, you seen an iron axe head float? No. Um, I don't know. Did you know there's more than one Noah in the Bible? No. Did you know that Oprah is a perversion of a biblical name? Ophrah. No. 
You want to play some Bible trivia? Well, no. I mean, I'm sure I know that book, but I don't... I, I, I can't be expected to remember anything in it. Well, how is it that you know about Jesus? Well, we've seen his pictures. I mean, at least what the artist told us he looked like, right? We've seen the bumper sticker. My kids occasionally go to church. We live in a place called Nazareth. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Now, I don't want to be demeaning to anyone, especially not me, right? <laughs> he could not do any miracles except heal all of the sick. Would you settle for that? We don't have to. If you combine the message with faith, there's nothing that we can't do. For him who believes, everything is possible. Not a few things, not the smallest things, everything is possible. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Jesus himself was astounded with something. He was astounded that they could trust him so little and know so much about him. What can you tell me about Jesus' sister? What can you tell me about Jesus' brothers? Well, maybe Jude, maybe James. But what can you tell me? What do you know about Joseph other than he was a carpenter and a pretty righteous man who had godly dreams and acted on him? What do you know about him? But they did. They could tell you how tall he was. They could tell you whether he was brown-headed or black-headed. They could tell you those things. They could probably give you every family fact. But you know what they could not do? See the miraculous power of God because they did not believe. Do you think maybe our level, of out, our level of education has outpaced our level of obedience? Do you think maybe in all of our great learning we've forgotten the most essential thing to become like a child and simply believe that if you've asked, you've received? Oh my goodness. They got offended with him. We know why they were offended. They were offended because they knew where he came from. Turn with me to Luke 4. You're going to see it one more time. I'm not trying to belabor a point. I want you to see the progression of something. In Luke 4, pick up with me in the 14th verse. Jesus returned to Galilee. Come on, what's this next phrase? In the power of the Spirit. Oh, man. Isn't that a good feeling? Rochelle returned to the church in the power of the Spirit. Mike returned to the church in the power of the Spirit. Would that phrase be associated with your life? Because it should. Jesus died that you might have access to his righteousness and be filled with the power of God. He didn't die just so that you could say, I have salvation. He died so that you could participate in the salvation of the world. So that you could become an agent of change, bearing his likeness, doing his deeds, his actual body on the earth. In the power of the Spirit. Come on, Cody, not Cody Schmidt's power. The power of the Holy Ghost. Everywhere Jesus went, he went in the power of the Holy Ghost. Oh my goodness, what an example. He poured out his spirit on all flesh. As many as would receive him, he gave the rights to become sons of God. Not second class citizens, not slaves. Not mere 
hearers or adherents, sons of the living God. You're made in his image. You're to act like him. Stephen Deedy went to Baton Rouge this week. They turned it upside down. They liberated those who were imprisoned. They preached good news to those who were trapped in chains of darkness. And they looked in the face of the devil and they took from him. You know why? They walk in the power of the Spirit. Everything that we've ever needed, we've been given. All we need to do is believe. All we need to do is believe. Are you in Luke 4? Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole country. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Who wrote that? Isaiah. Isaiah. So who is the me in the 7th century B.C.? But in the 1st century, who is it? Jesus. And in the 21st century, who is it? It's me. It's you. The Spirit of the Lord is upon us to continue His work, to preach good news to the poor. The prophet Nahum, who the village of Nahum, Kafar Nahum, is named for, he brought a pretty fine message. But it wouldn't be of any value if they didn't believe it. If they didn't stand up to Nineveh, if they didn't go stand toe-to-toe and believe that their God was going to come through, what good would it be? But God did everything to Nineveh He said He was going to do. I want to encourage you tonight that when we see 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That the only thing that verse is missing is your obedience to it. Anywhere we see the devil's work, the Spirit of the Lord is upon us to bring destruction to it. To absolutely stand up and pick your fight. Why? Because you're a son of God. You've already been chosen. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. That verse once was only for a genetic few. But to this day, it's for the new species. Those who are filled with the power of God. Come on, filled with the power of God. This means you have the right to liberate. You have the right to take on the enemy. You have the right to make a difference. You are free to do anything. Except use your freedom as a cover-up for sin. Oh my goodness. In Nazareth, they know all about Jesus. They know all about Jesus' family, but they know nothing of His power. Capernaum got that. Why? Because they began to believe the message. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. I bet Jesus knew how to make a scene. I bet he knew how to walk into a synagogue and shake things up. When Jesus entered in a town, Matthew said the whole town was a stir. But we think he'll enter into our churches and 
we won't even notice we're so reverent. When Jesus' power is on the scene, friends, it's hard to just sit on your salvation. It's hard to just act like a victim. You suddenly find out that you're a have, that the power of God is here, that Jesus is in your midst, and He approves of you. By your faith, He has credited you with His right standing. And the same power that raised Him from the dead is now beating inside of you, waiting to be unleashed upon the enemy like a coiled spring. Oh my goodness, if the church could understand what we have. Men like Jim Elliott said, I'm appalled at the power we profess and the utter impotency of the church. I would argue that we've misidentified the church. The church of Jesus Christ is not impotent. The church of Jesus Christ is powerful. Yeah. The church of Jesus Christ is effective. The church of Jesus Christ yeah. wields that double-edged sword and attacks the enemy. It's just that what is called the church. Good. Just because a man spends a night with a woman doesn't make her his bride, does it? At least not when you live in Nazareth. They got another name for that. Just because somebody claims to be in union with the Messiah doesn't mean they actually are. He's going to look at people and say, you say, Lord, Lord, well enough. Occasionally you speak for me. Sometimes you advocate for my cause, but you and I were never intimate. Get away from me, you worker of wickedness. You know, in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, you don't go there, please. We're going to stay here. Down towards the end of the chapter, he said, if you've been stealing, steal no longer, but do what? Something useful with your hands. It's not enough to simply stop being wicked. It's not enough to simply stop participating with the devil. That's religion, friends. It turns into some strange aesthetic thing. We stop doing wickedness and we start doing righteousness. You know what's righteous? It's righteous to save a life. It's righteous to intervene in a situation and cause justice. It is righteous to stand up to the enemy when the weak standing beside you without the power of God cannot do it. It is righteous to carry on the work of God. It is not enough to stand back and say we've not been wicked. James teaches us in the fourth chapter and 17th verse that when you know good is there to do and we do not do it, we have sinned. Missed God's intention for us. Erred. Actually participated in wickedness because we did not liberate. Oh, I know we could build a bigger church faster. All we need to do is give donuts out and tell you you're a champion. Meanwhile, the kingdom of God is not advancing. It's only your ego that's being padded. You know what feels really good? I mean really, really good? To go kick the devil in the face and liberate someone. It feels so good. I'm going to confess to you. This is one of those things that I sometimes lose sight of. Occasionally I even get misdirected in it. That's why it's so important to get before the King of Kings. It is so important to say, Lord, I live in Nazareth and I don't want that to wear off on me. I need a few minutes. And the pure, unadulterated, basking in the glory of your spirit. So that I can take out there what I've been doing with you in here course, if there is no intimate time with Jesus, if there is no fasting, if there is no prayer, if there is no studying, not for the obtaining of facts, but for the permeation of His character into yours, if that's not there, then what do we have to take to them? Well, we have a Nazareth-style religion. 
I can tell you all about Jesus. I can't do anything He does. And neither can anybody that I know. But I'll tell you all about Him. You might as well go worship Benjamin Franklin. What's the difference? I mean, what is the difference? If He's powerless, if there's nothing of Him here today, if it died in the first century, what is the difference? Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Jesus had gracious words at times. And they loved those. But even speaking to them tenderly, they said, isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. What are they saying? Are they questioning his legitimacy? Are they questioning whether or not he really could be anything special since they know where he came from. You know, Matthew 13, Mark 6, says this is the point where an offense entered. Luke doesn't mention it. He does mention what they did with their offense and the others didn't. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's town when the sky was shut for three and a half years. There was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. What does he seem to be saying? Hey, there was great needs everywhere. But it was only those who received him and believed that saw the great wonders of God. They saw them because they believed. It wasn't based on their location. It wasn't based on their genetics. It was based on one thing. Was the message mingled with faith? Wouldn't you think that this would cause wholesale repentance in Nazareth? We are so sorry. Now that we mention it, we can't think of a single thing you ever did wrong to us. We have no reason to doubt you. We only have reason to believe because we know everything about you. In fact, we're more accountable than any other people on the planet because to he who has been given much, much is required. So surely they fell down on their face and said, we believe. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. See, in Nazareth, we know everything about Jesus. But when he tells us a little something about ourselves, that Christ-killing spirit starts to rise. How many religious people do you know that will swear that this is the inerrant Word of God. But when you tell them what the Word of God says, simply divide it into segments that make it null and void, or fight with you about what it says, they will fight a battle with anybody except the devil. Mm. I didn't see it till I preached my father's funeral, but I preached his funeral from his Bible. These are his words, not mine. And he's with Jesus. So if you're lucky enough to make it there, and I believe most of you will, though not everybody hearing this will. You can ask him about it when he gets there. When you get there. 
The man was a superintendent of a Baptist school. He was Joe Baptist to the core, the hard-shelled kind. And when he got filled with the Holy Ghost, he wrote into his Bible in the book of Corinthians, we Baptists fight for the inerrancy of God's word and then fight with you when you tell us what it obviously says. That's his words, not mine. As I began thinking about what it is to live in Nazareth, I picked a hero. I thought about not telling you his name, but that's just not in my style. His name is R.C. Sproul. Anybody in here know him? Yeah. Got radio programs. R.C. Sproul has written more than 80 books, and most of them good books. He's not done 300 lectures in his life. He's had 300 lecture tours. He has degrees from Westminster from Pittsburgh Theological, and from the Free University of Amsterdam. To get that one, he had to learn another language. He's taught at more colleges and seminaries than I can name. He wrote this last year. I get this question all the time, R.C. Do you believe that miracles happen today? If you want me to give you the simple answer, it's no. If they're saying to me, do you believe that God is still working in the world supernaturally? Well, of course I do. Do you believe that God answers prayer? Of course I do. Do you believe that God heals people in response to prayer? Of course I do. All miracles are supernatural, but not all supernatural acts are miracles. Theologians get real tight in their making of distinctions. And when I say I don't believe in miracles today, I don't believe in the tight kind of miracle. In the very narrow sense where a miracle is defined as a work that occurs in the external, perceivable world. Apparently we believe in miracles as long as you can't see them. An extraordinary work in the external, perceivable world is against the laws of nature. By the immediate power of God. A work like that only God can do. Such as bringing life out of death. I guess he hasn't met some of the same people we've met. Restoring a limb that has been cut off by command. Such as walking on water, such as turning water into wine. He doesn't believe those exist anymore. Only God can do that. If a non-agent of revelation, which this article describes as someone who wrote the scripture. If a non-agent of revelation can perform a miracle, then a miracle cannot authenticate or certify a bona fide agent of revelation. In other words, if somebody who did not write the scripture could do a miracle, then doing a miracle cannot authenticate the scripture. Which would mean that the New Testament claimed to be carrying the authority of God himself because God has certified Christ and the apostles by miracles would be a false claim and a false argument. We've actually twisted this into saying if miracles can occur today, then the Bible cannot be true. Because the way that we know the Bible is true is they did miracles. Of course, if... You do a miracle, and you're flawed, and your writing is not scripture. Are you following the train wreck of thought? So what's at stake here is really the authority, the authenticity, even the truthfulness of the Bible itself. That's why I have this tight definition, and why I do not expect miracles, because I don't expect to find apostles running around today. So the narrow miracles, they stop happening at the end of the apostolic age. Let me tell you, this guy is a hero. He's done, no, 
He's written about amazing things. And I love him as an apologist. But I tell you what, I don't want him in my hospital room if I'm sick. You know why? He's born and bred in Nazareth. He knows everything there is to know about Jesus. He can speak about Jesus in more languages than I can say hello with. Of course, all of that knowledge about Jesus, and he does not believe that Jesus has given you the power to do his works. And he does not believe that apostles still exist or existed beyond the first century. Of course, who knows when Andronicus and Junus died? Because Romans calls them apostles. Anybody in here got a date on that one for us? There's 23 apostles mentioned by name and a 24th inferred in the New Testament. Does anybody have death dates on them? Can you tell me the moment at which Jesus stopped being Jesus? Can you tell me the moment at which the spirit of Jesus stopped moving people to do the works of Jesus? Well, I can't give you a date, but I can tell you the moment when we stopped believing. When we decided that Nazareth had the gospel instead of Capernaum. You can have the best message in the world, but if it is not mingled with faith, what good is it? Turn with me to 2 Timothy. Tell me when you're there. Are y'all mad at me because I took a shot at somebody much bigger than me? I'm not mad with R.C. Sproul. He's done a lot of good things for the gospel. But that one thing, that one thing is kind of important to me. And it might not be important to you, of course, as long as you never get sick. Never know anybody who needs a miracle. But if you know somebody that needs a miracle, it's a pretty big one, isn't it? You ever see something that was 98% effective? That's good if you're in the 98%. But if you're in the 2%, then it's 100% ineffective for you. If Jesus said, these signs shall follow them that believe. And you cannot trust that word. What makes you think you can trust any other word that was written? I'm going to choose to believe. And because I believe, even though I'm a flawed human being, and my best friends can attest to that. I've seen people get out of wheelchairs. I put my hands on them and seen them recover. I've cast out demons on three continents. And you know what? You know me. I'm a mess. But he loves me. And he loves you. And he will fill you with his power. And his kingdom is for today. It's not for the first century. It's not for the last century. It is for today. Unless, of course, you want to live in Nazareth. By the way, did you know Nazareth, the place where Jesus was raised, is Muslim today? Did you know that? You can't even go into Nazareth now without special approval. You can see it from a distance. The water coolers on the roof that they used to be heated by the sun because some folks don't have hot water, they painted them blue. You know why they paint them blue in in Islamic-dominated neighborhoods? It scares away the evil spirits. I'm not sure it's working. I'm going to suggest something besides a new color. I don't know, maybe they could get filled with the Holy Ghost. Are you in 2 Timothy? In 2 Timothy, let us look at the third chapter. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money. Boastful. Proud. Abusive. Disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful. Unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. Is that describing some other country? 
You know, I, I'm behind the times. I want to admit it. You can only read so much in my little Fox News app and Drudge Report. They don't, they don't tell me everything, right? So occasionally I'll be somewhere and I'll see something on the TV in a waiting room. And uh, I found out yesterday, <laughs> young people, don't laugh at me. I didn't know what Gangnam was or Gangnam. Gangnam, is that it? I didn't know what that was. And I certainly didn't know what Gangnam style was. But apparently nearly, nearly a billion people on this planet have watched a South Korean dance like he's on a horse. Does that say something about where we're at? Because I have pictures of a woman getting out of a wheelchair. And I posted the event on Facebook and I had exactly six comments. But a billion people want to see a Korean dance like an idiot. It is the most watched video of all time. More people have seen that than saw or cared about the passion of the Christ. Wow. We don't love pleasure, do we? We're, we're not in that category that is not lovers of the good, are we? You know what the second most watched video of all time is? Justin Bieber's latest... I don't know. I, I mean, I just don't get it. I knew this day would come. It's not just an age gap. I don't live in Nazareth anymore. I'm not concerned about Nazareth anymore. I have learned to discount people that can tell me everything and do nothing. I've actually learned to love people that I ardently disagree with on every major doctrinal point as long as they're working beside me. You know, I care a whole lot less if you're there putting a roof on the widow's house with me, whether or not you're pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, or just like to eat cereal and don't care. I don't have in mind the things of Nazareth anymore. I would say I'm in the Capernaum category. I've heard the good news. I'm going to mingle it with faith. I'm ready to embarrass the prince of this world. Yes. He made a fool out of me long enough. Yes. I had a miraculous transformation. My, my mom was not here tonight, so I can just tell it like it really happened. I grew up in a house that nutrition was not the uh, highest priority in the beginning, not because we were poor, but we weren't poor. We just spent our money on things that you shouldn't. We threw away all of the pictures from those days because they're embarrassing when your life gets cleaned up. But I was born in the sixth month of my mother's pregnancy. And I quickly dropped to under two pounds. Then in the fourth month of my life, I was given cow's milk and spent the next nine months in a hospital. Then came home to two chain smokers of everything, including weed, whose favorite thing was alcohol and pills. My growth was a little bit stunted, to say the least. You know what it's like with kids, huh? Ones that aren't the strongest, aren't the fastest, sometimes get a little harder time. But I had a miraculous transformation in about the sixth grade. Something began coursing through my veins that put muscle tone on me, changed my body, changed my attitude too. And the people that had humiliated me because I was lost, I made a full pastime out of humiliating them. And I didn't mind how many days I was left out of school or those kind of things. I kind of enjoyed it caused my parents such grief. 
caused me a lot of grief. Sin does that. It hurts you. But when I came into the kingdom, something of that old attitude suddenly got renovated. There was a prince of this world who had been making a monkey out of me for a long, long time. And I had the opportunity to make a monkey out of him. I had the opportunity to prove him a liar and God true. I didn't have to do anything except stand fast in belief. And when I had done everything to stand, take my stand. And suddenly it didn't matter how big the giants were, they fell. And you could use their own swords to cut off their heads. And you could carry them around like a trophy. Because this is what people of God do. You know where the biggest enemies were? Where the most friendly fire occurred? In the church. Everybody was always trying to convince Matthew and I that we should not be doing what we were doing, even though it was working. See, when you live in Nazareth, you get a little upset with people who are doing miracles, even if they're small miracles, because it might prove there's something more than ordinary about them. And if there's something more than ordinary about them, and Lauren, we know where you came from, and we know who you are, and we know everything about you, and yet you're doing something extraordinary. What does that say about us? See, the religious spirit kills those who have Christ in them because it proves they do not have Christ in Amen. them. It's the delineation between the church and not church. What's that next verse there? Put it on the screen for us. Of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Treacherous, rash, conceited lovers of... No, you didn't get it. They we're working on it. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. The scripture itself says that if they have a form of godliness but no power, do not have anything to do with them. Now let's talk about who is the church and who is not. Let's talk about who is the bride and who is not. If the test, if the litmus test is the power of Christ, then who can we associate with and who can we not? The first way that the power of Christ manifests, repentance precedes power. So you will find yourself gathered to acquire more knowledge about Jesus. And suddenly, the power of God falls on the room. And people are saying embarrassing things out loud. Because they would rather have the power of God than the pride and sin that had filled them moments before. And suddenly you find out that although you're standing in a living room, you're standing in the kingdom of God. Because you believe again. I want to invite you to believe again, friends. Titus 1.16 says that we can claim to know Him and deny Him by our actions. But I've talked about that enough. Let us go to Mark. We'll be in the 16th chapter of Mark. Interestingly enough, R.C. Sproul signed a document and helped craft it about the inerrant Word of God. He wanted to make sure that no liberal interpretation crept in. The Presbyterian circles he runs in. The highly Calvinist circles he runs in. And he wanted to make sure for all time they settled the issue. Every single syllable of the word is inspired. They called it verbal plenary inspiration. Doesn't that sound fancy? What good is it if you don't actually believe it when you read it? Let's, let's read something that is the result of verbal plenary inspiration is the 17th verse and these signs will accompany those who believe in my name until the first century is over <laughs> what happened did I get something wrong no. 
And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will speak, I'm sorry, believe in my name. They will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. Unless, of course, they don't believe. But if we believe, what do we do? Well, we speak in new tongues. How do I know that gets for me? Because you believe. I mean, it's not for you if you don't believe. Do you really want to be in that category? They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. It doesn't tell them to drink deadly poison. It says when they drink it. Apparently you would be doing such damage to the kingdom of hell that people would try to poison you. But they wouldn't be able to. I've eaten some meals that made me wonder. <laughs> Nobody on the planet that hates red beans more than I do, I don't think. Darren is a close second, he says. Feels like poison in the dish, but I want to tell you the power of the Holy Ghost will cause me to even be able to eat a red bean. I proved it last Saturday. It will not hurt them at all, praise God. I ate gumbo at the Vincent's. That was good. Where are you at, Teresa? Brent? Okay. That was good gumbo. I want you to know that. I come from Louisiana. It was good. I don't usually eat gumbo when I'm away from home because I don't know what's in it. I don't eat it at home because I do know what's in it. But apparently, the power of the Holy Ghost makes gumbo good. Because they have a Holy Ghost filled house. And I eat three bowls. They will place their hands on sick people. And they will get well. These are the signs that follow them who believe. The people have decided to leave Nazareth and follow Jesus to Capernaum where something actually happens. Friends, we can argue about what it means to be a full gospel church or a spirit filled church or a Pentecostal church. I think there's just one church. Those who believe. And I don't care what title you put on yourself. If you don't believe, then you do not see the works of God. But if you do believe, you see them. So go with me to Matthew 10, 7. Put that one on the screen. This has become a mantra as of late. <coughs> Even the verbal preliminary inspiration as I do, I want you to know this is just as inspired as John 3, 16. Do you have a footnote that says this is not as important as John 3.16 there? No. Do you have one there that says that this is doubtful in the Greek or Hebrew? No. You don't. Then what's Matthew 10.7 say? As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received. Freely give. Is that verse inspired? Yes. Is it ambiguous? <coughs> what does it mean as you go? It apparently means as you go. I watched Donald Rumsfeld back in the Bush administration. and He's not a diplomat. I liked him though. I don't know whether he's a good Secretary of Defense. History will tell that. And I'm not here to spit out political issues. It's obvious who is right. So they asked Donald Rumsfeld, what was the point of that operation? He said to kill the bad guys. Reporters' hands go up everywhere. Yes, what was the strategic objective? 
to make them dead. <laughs> he walked away from the microphone. They said, one more question, one more question, one more question. He meandered back to the microphone, picked it up and said, no. And walked out of the room. <laughs> As you go, this is not ambiguous. We're not supposed to stay here. We're not supposed to huddle like salt in a shaker. We are supposed to go. This means go to your neighbor. It means go to your fellow worker. It means go anywhere that you have seen the prince of the power of the air affecting people's lives and hand him his head. That's what it means. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Why is the kingdom of heaven near? You want to see the kingdom far away? You get far away from something. We call it God forsaken, but it's actually church forsaken. You want to know that the kingdom's near? Go stand right next to it. When we showed up in Riancho the kingdom of God was there. When we showed up in Yanni Palam, the kingdom of God was there. Because we are in the kingdom of the kingdom, and the kingdom is within us. Wherever we go, the kingdom is at hand. Yeah. So how can you go find somebody who is in trouble and say the kingdom is near, or you are near the kingdom? Because you're standing next to them. Amen. You are filled with the power of God, a participator in the divine nature of God. Yeah. And what do we do when we preach the kingdom is near? We heal the sick. We raise the dead. We cleanse the lepers and we drive out demons. This is what we do. Unless, of course, we don't believe. Then we show up and tell them something retarded like, He'll give you help in this life and heaven in the next. Raise a pinky while I leave. How could you say that? Because it was never preached in the Word. It never came close to a ridiculous Mickey Mouse message like that. They preached the kingdom was here. And then they took on every satanic power. They invited opposition. They burned their books publicly. They took on all comers. And the kingdom of God prevailed. Because when Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against this kingdom message, He meant it. He meant it. It's working pretty good in your life, isn't it, Curtis? Yeah. He's doing better this week than last. You know why? Because he just stepped into the kingdom. Where you at, Bud Yoder? It's working well in your life? This month better than last month? Because the kingdom showed up. Guys, we have such an awesome responsibility. Joy, put on the screen Ephesians 1, 18. I've been praying this every day. I'm probably going to pray it every day for the rest of my life. Before you throw a stone at me about that, a lot of you pray the Lord's Prayer all of the time and have it hanging on your wall. I like this one. And some of you have the prayer of Jabez on your wall. Why the prayer of Jabez and not Jehoshaphat? Why, why do we pick the ones that expand us materially and don't hurt us at all? No sacrifice, no power, no, no daring, no courage. Well, that's why. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and His incomparably great power for us who believe. You know what that's better than? Obamacare. There'd be no panel here to decide whether or not I get treatment. There'd be no government bureaucrat right here telling me what it's going to cost. The price is paid. All I have to do is believe, and these signs will follow me. There is incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of His mighty strength, which He exerted in Christ Jesus when He raised Him from the dead. You know who else He raised from the dead? 
us. Ephesians 2 goes on to say somewhere around verse 6, He seated us with Christ Jesus in the heavenly realms. I was once dead, but He raised me up with Christ. Not He will raise me up. Not one day I hope to be good enough to be. The scripture of the living God that is inspired says, I am seated with Christ Jesus right now. Unless, of course, I don't believe it. Because it's faith that puts me everywhere in the kingdom. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. So you have to believe that He exists in your situation right now. And that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. So when we pray, we believe that He exists in that situation. Well, I, I just don't feel particularly anointed today. He never said you had to. You know, I, there's this thing, I, I don't feel particularly qualified to do this. Whoever has, what could make you qualified to participate in the divine nature? If you felt qualified, I would say something's wrong with you. We stand by trust in Him. Not by our accreditation. Not by our performance. Not by any other thing. Dee Dee, how tall are you? Five foot. And dynamite comes in small packages, doesn't it? Yes. She's five foot tall. But when she looked at a demon and a man a couple weeks ago, he obeyed her. Isn't that amazing? Why? Is it because of her great strength? I don't know, but I'm going to, Steve might correct me, I bet I can out arm wrestle Dee Dee. I mean, I look, this is atrophy in action right here. Apparently, it never depended upon her great strength. You know what this makes you? Powerful. And the weaker you are, the greater opportunity to show his power. Maybe this is why when Suzanne prays for a parking space, she gets it. Right? Maybe this is why when humble, ordinary people dare to believe God. He shows up and endorses their faith. <coughs> you know where Mr. Sproul got it wrong? It's not just the miracles that attested to the scripture. That is an awesome attestation that changed lives in today's century attest to the scripture. And the miracle power that follows me today still attests to the scripture. Because the gospel is not that he would anoint a special few for a specific time. The gospel is that he would pour out his spirit on all flesh. That he gives his spirit without limit, as John said. The gospel is that he made you participate in his righteousness. Oh my goodness. If you've received all of that, how could we ignore such a great salvation? If you've received all of that, how do we sit back and just watch football? How do we do that? How do we pretend like we don't have the answer? How do we go back to being a have-not? You know, there were a couple times in this ministry where we meant well when we got a little misdirected. We said, you know, we've worked hard. Hey, is there anybody out here that thinks they don't work hard? Anybody admit to that? <laughs> as far as I can tell, every guy I've ever met thinks he's the hardest working guy there is, despite all the evidence to the contrary, right? Data denial at work, you know? Oh, man, we work hard. So we went on a vacation. 
I had no idea that 40 miles from where we were at when we were on vacation, there were people starving to death. I didn't know that. And so while we were on marble floors overlooking a sandy beach, people were dying 40 miles away. I didn't know that. And while I was there thinking, oh, I just, I need the vacation, right? The Lord taught us a lesson. It was not a restaurant, not a shop, not even a beach that we went to. And we were not praying for the sick, preaching the gospel, counseling those with marriage problems. Everywhere we went. We actually sat down one place and said, dude, I just came here to eat, you know. Everywhere we went. Because there is no such thing as the sons of God taking time off from being the sons of God. The very creation itself has been subjected to frustration in its longing, its writhing. It's actually having birthing pains waiting for you to be revealed for what God's called you to be. And when you stand up in the way that God has called you to, Satan will stand up as well. And we'll be locked in a mortal battle. And it might even look as if we're being defeated. And then our king, the head of the body, will descend and reunite with his body and put an end to the matter. It's a disgraceful son that sleeps during the harvest. I pray you wake up tonight. Y'all stand to your feet. In this body of believers, we're reaching out in every direction now. It's now more important than ever before to remember that a healthy congregation, a healthy one, the Christ kind, the kind that's not Nazareth but is Capernaum, is not based on the generosity of a few people. It's based on the sacrifice of all. This means that every man, woman, and child in here does their part, carries their load in the kingdom goes out with the Spirit of the Lord upon them, looking to do the work of Christ. We're going to cross the threshold where you can't simply pick up the phone and call one of the leaders and ask them to do it for you because the harvest is greater than the number of workers. You're going to have to rise up in your faith and begin to believe God can do it through you. You're going to have to step out and say He's not a respecter of persons. If he did it through Eric last time we prayed and asked Eric to do it, he'll do it through me right now. And then the kingdom of God multiplies exponentially. Amen. It's when you go from chasing one a thousand to two, ten thousand. How many would a hundred chase them? There's no force in hell that can stop us. I want you to know that. Eleven Jewish boys changed the planet. Look around you. There's more than eleven here. Join the hands of the people around you. Let's pray together.